So we're in the book of Mark, if you want to turn there. And in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, that's what we're going to cover this morning. The, the disciples now, they have followed Jesus. They have learned of Jesus. They have heard Jesus' teaching. They have seen his miracles. They have witnessed these powerful works of authority. And now they are to go from learners to proclaimers. They are now to move from observers to preachers. See, Jesus is preparing these 12 people to carry the torch of his whole ministry. So up to this point, the ministry of Jesus Christ is the ministry of just Jesus Christ. He's doing the ministry. But soon he will give his life and sacrifice for our sins at the cross and raise again from the dead and then circulate around so that these disciples and many others will be able to see the risen Jesus in person. And then he will ascend to the right hand of the Father where he will remain until he comes back again. But see, it was these 12, these 12 men that were to watch, to learn, to study, to ask questions, to investigate, to understand what the ministry of Jesus was, in particular the gospel, in particular salvation, in particular how to live as a believer in this world. And they were to carry the torch of the whole future of the kingdom of heaven on earth, of the way of the church, of the way of salvation. It all rested on these 12 men. And then they lost one. So then it rested on 11. But then they gained one later, so you got 12 again. But think about that. Think about if all of Christianity in your generation, in my generation, all of right now, all of it rested upon what you do. How would Christianity be in the world? If all of Christianity relied on what Calvary Chapel Flower Mound did, how would the world's Christianity be? And see, in the times of Jesus, it was perilous times as well. So they were living in a time where people were getting sick like crazy and they didn't really have uh, too many doctors like we know it today. They they didn't have uh, understanding uh, about how to even have pain relief like we can have and how to negotiate evil in this world. They are having these manifestations of the demonic world like like crazy all over the place and just 
uh, chaos was uh, running rampant and sin was running rampant and control and domination and political upheaval. And, and this was the condition that these 12 disciples were unleashed to as sheep among wolves. And we're sitting here today because of their faithfulness to carry out what Jesus charged them with by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we get into this, what we're going to look at is the particular calling that now the church has that we have. And that there's a time to learn and understand and grow, but then there's a time to go. And now is the time to go. Now is the time to go into all the world and proclaim the truth that sets people free. So let's look at the text in Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. We're going to read through that, and then we're going to dig in a little deeper. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. And assuredly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And so they went out and they preached that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who are sick and healed them. And so here we have this account of Jesus' disciples now being put in play as to the accountability for all that they have learned and understood. And this was sort of a... a short-term missions trip, if you will. And I love how Jesus um, leads us in smaller things to prepare us for bigger things. And this is what was happening. We might want to look at the last verse of chapter 6, verse 6, the last part of that, because it's really connected. And that's where it says, then he, Jesus, went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And so what was happening is around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus himself was going around and preaching and teaching. And as he was doing that, he sends his disciples, the 12 out, to also do that. So in effect, the, the ministry of Jesus now is not just contained to him, is now it's spreading to his disciples, those whom he entrusted and spent time sort of preparing for this moment. 
So first, what we have to look at, when we understand the importance and the calling of going, that we're called to go, not just to sit and watch, but we are those who go, then we have to understand first the, the elements of the calling. And that's what's happening in the beginning. So notice in verse 7, it says, He called the twelve to himself, and then he began to send them out two by two. So these initial movements of God in sending someone out is that he calls a person to himself first. That's important. He calls a person to himself. So as in the case of, say, uh, the Apostle Paul, when in Acts chapter 9 he was on the road to Damascus. And what was Paul doing in Acts chapter 9 on this road? He was going to persecute people who at that time were called the people of the way. He was going to persecute what we know as Christians. And as he's on his way to do that, Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus, in his appearance to him, undid Paul. This is a, a good way to think about what it's, what it's like to, to come to Jesus. He undoes us. This is what Isaiah had happened to him in Isaiah chapter 6. He, he was undone. It was almost like the, the presence of God in his life was so overwhelming that he didn't have any arguments. He didn't have any debates. He didn't have any challenges. He was just completely undone. This was Paul's experience, just, just undone. And this questioning of Jesus towards Paul was a questioning of why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you, in other words, resisting me, Paul? This is what Jesus is saying to Paul. Why are you resisting me? Why are you so hard-headed? Why are you so stubborn? Why are you continually fighting against me? And Paul's response was, who are you? And Jesus introduced himself. And that's when Paul became undone. And Paul said, subsequent to that introduction, when he realized who Jesus was, Paul said, what do you want me to do? And this is what it's like to come to Jesus. We say, what do you want me to do? We're now his. We're now in his service. We're now those who have a higher calling. We're now those who see things in a much bigger and a much more significant way than just the, the things of this world. We're now those who, like Peter and Andrew, who were called. And Jesus said, follow me. And then he tagged onto that and what? I will make you fishers of men. And so the calling is to Jesus, the person of Jesus, to a personal relationship with him. And embedded in that calling is also the sending. So every believer is a missionary. Every believer is an ambassador. 
Every believer is a light. Every believer is salt. Every believer has a commission. Every believer is a missionary. To be called to Jesus is to be called to be sent out by Jesus. And when we separate those two, what we're doing is we're really separating the core of what it means to be a Christian. In other words, you can't separate the calling to Jesus and the sending of Jesus. And so as he calls the 12 to himself, then it says he began to send them out two by two. And then he gave them power over unclean spirits. So when we're called, we're called to Jesus himself personally into a personal relationship. And it it is that calling to that personal relationship, which is the motivation to tell people about the goodness of Jesus. And then this desire to want to share Jesus is then met with this supernatural empowering by Jesus. His calling is his enabling. When he says go, we are able to go. And that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. No, nothing man or evil or devil, the devil or the fallen angels can send against us can overcome us. And that's why it's important to understand that when we are taking the Great Commission seriously and taking our calling seriously to be ambassadors that we know that we have the power to do that. And so we have to be very careful that we don't look at the task in light of our own ability to complete the task. But we say it's by the power of Jesus Christ. But see, this is when things really get good. And this is what so many miss out in the Christian life. Because it it is in our obedience to that going that empowers us and brings about the power of God in our life so that we're not just living a predictable, normal life that we have it all figured out and we know how to do. And we don't even need the power of God. So think about that. Do we need the power of God? And we're not just talking about the power of God to, in our own life, conquer ourself, right? Some people merely see the things of the Bible as ways of personal enhancement and self-help. But when we talk about many of the things in the Bible as, as far as God's enabling, God's empowering, um, even persecutions. Sometimes we think persecution is we, if we don't get what we want. And it's almost always in the context of us going out in a way of sharing or proclaiming or standing for the gospel. See, when we're doing that, now we're, actually in the game, if you will. We're actually participants of the things of God. And and 
this is one reason many people stay stuck in their Christian life of self-focus and self-help and constantly um, confused and in dismay and depression is because as Christians, we're meant to go out in the power of God. And so we don't see too much of the disciples self-loathing or self-pity or woe is me. Generally, we see them all fired up in the worst of circumstances because the power of God is working through them. And that's so amazing to them. But I think we live in a culture that for Christianity sort of sabotages this empowerment, this empowerment that Jesus said he will give to us because our Christianity doesn't go even out to Jerusalem and for sure not to Samaria and for sure not to Judea and for sure not the ends of the world because it doesn't go further than the circle around us that we're standing in. So we're still trying to disciple ourselves. We're still trying to be okay ourselves. We're still trying to wonder uh, how come I keep getting stuck and how come I keep ending up in the same position? How come I feel like I'm drowning all the time? And the reason is you're not going in the power of God. You're not going in the power of the Spirit. And so Jesus tells them that they will, they will have power, that, that no evil will overcome them, but that suggests that we can only do the things of God and for God in the power of the Spirit. When we try to do those things in the power of our flesh, we will for sure fail. We will give up. We will quit. We will probably blame God. But see, he says, go and you will have the power over the unclean spirit. So part of the empowerment is in the process of going in the name of God with the word of God and then the power of God. But then look in verse 8. Then he commanded them to take nothing for the journey. Commanded them to take nothing for the journey. So when he's saying that, what, he, what he is saying is, as we go in the power of God, now we're to go by the commandment of God. This is all part of the calling. So now, as we recognize we are called, we may not understand all that's involved in it, but we're presenting ourselves to God and saying, I see this in your word. I see this in your scripture. And so, Lord, I'm presenting myself to you. I'm saying, Lord, here I am. Do whatever you want with me. But the, then the next thing is, our job is not to make ministry happen. Our job is to obey the Lord because we understand that he has good works for us already prepared beforehand. And our job is just to walk in those things. So what that requires is that, one, we are surrendered to God's will, number one. What being surrendered to God's will is, what it means is, or how it looks, is we say, Lord, at the innermost 
most part of my being, the, the part that's really me. At, the Bible often refers to that as our heart. It, it's who we are, the core of who we are. And at the core of who we are, we are saying, Lord, your will be done. At the core of who we are, it's sort of like the circuit board of our existence. And at the circuit board of our existence, we're letting God control our circuit board. That's what it means to be surrendered to his will. That's what it means to be abandoned to him. And so at the center of our being, we say, Lord, I surrender to your will. And practically, how that looks is that we're excited about a no or a yes. Why? Because it's God's will. So God's will becomes supreme. And when his will becomes supreme, now we sort of signed up for God to work in our life to the extent that he will be glorified. You don't have to raise your hands, but is that where you're at? Are we there? Is this, this is the core of our Christianity. The core of our Christianity is that at the core of our being, we actually have a choice, free will, if you will, to let God control the circuit board of our life. And as he has control of that, then what happens is we're looking for, praying for, being discerning about what is your will, God? So how that looks is the practical part of it is it looks like it's not up to us to make ministry happen. It's up to us to seek God's will so that we can walk in what we understand to be God's will. So now the emphasis is on what God's doing and not what we do. And the role that we play is that we're diligently seeking his will. But the only way that really this really works is that we're surrendered to his will. And that's why we are told in Hebrews chapter 4 that his word is like a sword that divides between the soul and the spirit because now his word is that which gets to the bottom of are we really surrendered to his will. That's why it's important to be regularly in his word and studying it for the purpose of understanding what's your will for me, God? What's your desire for me? We get into God's word, not just, just to learn information, but to seek what God's will is. And as he confirms his will in our heart, then we're anxiously excited to obey his will. And as that happens, we have this promise that our lives would glorify his name. And so the disciples then finally, as they're commanded to take nothing, he gives them explicit instructions of what not to take or to take. He says, accept a staff. So you can have a staff, but don't take two staffs. 
which were customary. No bag. Bags bring what? Baggage. So don't bring a bag. Only a ba- thing a bag is good for is baggage. Don't bring any bread. Don't bring any copper in your money belts. Don't bring money. Don't bring food. Don't bring extra gear. Verse 9, wear sandals, but don't put on two tunics. A tunic would be kind of like a, an overcoat. One would be next to the skin, kind of like a, a T-shirt or something. The other would be over the top, and the one over the top would often be used for a, a blanket or a pillow at night when they would sleep. And he said, don't bring two, but that you can bring one. And what, what is he doing here? It's the last point of the calling. So what he's doing first, just uh, contextually and historically, is that the rabbinic teaching would be to the rabbis, when they would go to the temple, they were not to bring these things listed. And the reason was is because they were to discard anything that might get in the way of their pure worship to God. So they were to go into the temple to worship God and, and strip themselves of those things which could distract them from true worship of God. And it is also to be a reminder of how are they, they are to put off the things of the world when they worship the true God. So the disciples were to consider as they were to go out in ministry like this, that they were to be heavenly minded and not worldly minded. But not only that, this would require them to be dependent on God. And that's the last point of the calling. When we are called to serve God, then we have to be okay with God allowing us or putting us in positions to be uncomfortable. Because those positions of being uncomfortable are positions of dependence we don't have time this morning but if you have time tonight which i know you all do read deuteronomy chapter 8 read deuteronomy it's one chapter but the emphasis is on how god brought the children of israel through the wilderness so that they would be dependent on him when they got into the promised land And so there's a good probability that whatever you are going through today may be because God is teaching you to be dependent upon him. So he can teach you that he is sufficient, that he is enough. So that we would know and have that confidence that he is with us. And I was talking to Tamar on the way to church this morning. I said, you know what's interesting? Maybe ironic, but if you understand the Bible, it's not really ironic. The people that I know personally and have known personally that go through the hardest things somehow seem to love God the most. You would think that would be maybe the opposite. In a worldly sense, you would think that. But it's always you, the people that I admire most that I know as believers are the people that have gone through the most. 
And they're the most joyful in the Lord. They are the most overwhelmed with the love of God. Which just on a secular sense, you you'd think, wow, when you go through something hard, you, you would have a, a avoidance of who or what you think is involved in the thing that you're going through. But it's not like that with, with God. Because through those trials, God develops a dependency. But in that dependency is where we find the love of God. It's in that dependency. It's those times where we have nothing else and we cry out to the Lord. It's those times of intimacy and closeness. And this is the times that Job was brought through to where he got to the end of his trial and he said, before I heard about God, now I see God. It was the intimacy that was developed in his trial. So that's what God does through our trial. He develops a dependency. So that's the calling. Those are the elements of the calling. Look what happens next as we're sent. There's a, a necessity of a certain persisting. You might want to say perseverance. As he sends them out, as he, he calls them and sends them, in verse 10 it says, He said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. So, in other words, they were to go from these villages to villages, and they, they didn't have any substance. So they were to depend on God. As they would enter a city, it would be dependent on someone within the city to welcome them into the house or not to welcome them into the house. So there were certain people that we are told here in verse 11 that will be rejecting you. They're already told this up front. So this is part of it. Notice in verse 11, he says, And whoever will not receive you, nor hear you. Notice that. They don't want to have anything to do with you. And remember, all throughout the Galilean region, the word of Jesus was all around those villages. They would have all heard what Jesus was doing, what people are saying about him. And then his disciples would come to these villages and the people would know what their intent was. And there'd be certain people that would refuse to hear what they have to say and to teach. Now, Matthew's account in Matthew 10, verses 12 through 13 of this same account, it says, when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So isn't that interesting? As they would go and bring the message of Jesus Christ, peace would fall on that house. It's all in relationship to their relationship with the Prince of Peace. But if, if they rejected, then there would be no peace. Now, Christians... You know that peace that goes beyond all understanding, don't you? As believers, we 
have a peace that the world does not give, but a peace that only Jesus gives. This is one of the most amazing things about being a believer is that we have peace with God. And we live in that existence that we have peace with God. See, before we become believers, we cannot have true peace because true peace, peace comes by being at peace with God. And so we live with that peace. But you know what? Living and experiencing that peace infuriates the world. The world hates your peace. You can have your peace. Take your peace and get out of here. But that's true. And you, we are able to look at the world and see the chaos that's in the world. Would you say that's a good description of the world? Just chaos. Chaos with no answers. Chaos with no no way to fix it. And here we are having the peace that goes beyond all understanding. The peace with God, peace of forgiveness, peace of enjoying a relationship with God, peace of the spirit living within us, peace of our sins being washed away, peace from not experiencing the guilt and the shame of our sin, peace knowing that this world is not it and that we will be in the kingdom of heaven forever and ever and ever. This is the peace that we have. But not everybody likes that. In fact, that may be one of the reasons the world hates Christians is because of the peace that we have. The peace that demonstrates we're not of this world, but of a different world. It's irritating. It's... it's uh, something that causes inflammation of the spirit to people that don't know the Lord. And so the, the, the strange thing is then these disciples who are bringing this message of healing, they, they, they've demonstrated the, the physical healing of Jesus and now they have been given that same power so they can go and heal, they can go and cast out evil spirits, they can grant eternal life in Jesus, and yet there are people that are going to reject that. There are rejectors. And there are those people, it says in verse 11, they will not receive you. They won't hear from you. But notice the instructions. When you depart from there, shake off the dust from under your feet as a testimony against them. This practice was a practice of the Jews who had walked through a Gentile village or city and when they got out, they would dust off their feet because they didn't want to carry Gentile dust back to their Jewish cities. But see, the disciples are going to Jewish towns and cities and they are told if someone doesn't receive you, you brush off that dust as a testimony because it says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than that for that city. So the disciples, as 
this is how Jesus is teaching them to persist in what they are called to do. He's telling them right off the bat, it won't make sense, you won't understand it, but there are going to be people who reject you. And they will forfeit the peace and ultimately the salvation that I'm bringing. But he tells them, just keep going. That's what he tells them. I find this so insightful because many Christians may hear a message like this or start off in their Christian life in some sort of uh, desire to share the gospel with people and they find rejection. And because of that rejection, they sort of say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore because it's not fun. But what Jesus is saying, it's not about winning or losing. It's about persisting in the sharing and the preaching. Sort of like that example of the sower and the seeds. Our job is just to throw out seeds, throw it everywhere. But there are going to be some who reject. But think about this. Rejecting your sharing of the gospel is also fruit of the gospel. Rejection is fruit. Why? Because in order for someone to be judged, it'll be the rejection of the message of Jesus Christ that they rejected. And that's why he says there will be judgment because of their particular rejection of you. So as we throw out seeds, we know the rejection is some, something that someone will stand before God and they will actually be accountable for that. They will be without excuse because of that. They will be reminded, in fact, that this person shared this gospel with you and you said no and you rejected it and that's why no one will have an excuse so rejection or reception they're both fruit and our job is not even to focus on that and that's where we get messed up where we say you know i just have shared the gospel and nobody's seemingly receiving it well, first of all, we don't know if they will later. And second of all, their rejection of it is also part of it. But our emphasis and the value that we should have is to value faithfulness in sharing the gospel and not on what happens when we share the gospel. Because in reality, what happens when we share the gospel is not even our deal. That's God's thing. Our thing is to throw seeds. And when we do that, whether it's received or not, this is what we should value. This is what we should rejoice in. This is what we should go skipping home about. I got to share the gospel with somebody. Well, what happened? I don't know, but I got to share the gospel with someone. Well, did they weep and 
cry and, and fall on their knees and surrender their life to the Lord? No, they said I was an idiot, but I got to share the gospel. <laughs> That's what's important. I shared the gospel. And you know that person that thinks I'm an idiot? Who knows? We might see them in heaven. Because that seed of the gospel, it stays in the heart of a person. You know that, that person, they're... Their second to last breath might be to say, yes, Jesus, and then they die. And it's because you planted that seed of the gospel in their heart that they hated you for. They wouldn't talk to you about. They avoided you. And yet they were on their deathbed and they said, yes, Jesus, and you will see them in heaven. Amen. But there's a good side to this, too. See, there will be people that accept it. And remember, this all sort of started in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 and 38, when it says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness, every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So that's what preceded this sending out in Matthew. It's this compassion that Jesus had. And this is what moves us. Our, our compassion for people in relationship to the gospel should be what moves us. Our compassion for people should be bigger than our being angry at people for not agreeing with us, not thinking like us, not doing the things that we think they should do. Our compassion should be greater than those things. And I think sometimes as Christians, we lower our standard to where if someone doesn't measure up to our standard of what we expect, and you cannot expect a believer to act like a believer. You can't expect someone who does not have the Holy Spirit to be yielded to the fruit of the Spirit. So our compassion has to be greater. And I'm blown away when Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That blows me away. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I have to remind myself all the time, Lord, Father, forgive that person or that group of people, or the, those people so filled with rage and hate and anger, even those people who are mocking the gospel, mo mocking Christians, making light of the things that we take so serious. Lord, help me remember to have compassion. My compassion must be greater than those things. And so as Jesus was moved with compassion that's what moved him he saw people that were lost and he saw these people that were so lost he was moved with compassion to go to the cross but the last 
thing I want to point out is, is now as, as, as the disciples are being sent out, the, the practical part is really what they're doing is ministering. They're ministering Jesus to people. That's what ministry is. You minister Jesus to people, no matter what form that takes and how you serve. Whatever you're doing, you do it as unto the Lord. So we are not people that are identified by the things that we do. We are people that are identified by who we are. When we get that mixed up, we're going to miss what it means to be a believer. So what we are dictates everything that we do. So if we think, well, I'm a a policeman. Well, then your whole view of yourself is you're a policeman. But in reality, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian who does police stuff. And because you're a Christian, the police stuff you do is you do it as a believer, as unto the Lord. So who we are affects everything that we do. And the disciples now, as they're going out to minister, here's the practical part. Notice what they actually did in verse 12. They went out and they preached that people should repent. So true ministry involves a word, involves a speech, and it is ministering the truth of Jesus to people. It's not ministry to tell people that the sin that they're living in is okay because God is a loving God. That's not ministry. Ministry is telling people that sin that you're in, Jesus wants to forgive you of that, remove the guilt and remove the shame and remove the lack of peace and the destruction and the hurt that it's causing. The true gospel and true ministry is such that it tells people you must turn to that and receive the peace of Jesus Christ who will wipe away the shame, wipe away the guilt, wipe away the destructiveness of sin and bring you into a right relationship with him. And see, properly ministering the gospel is realizing and understanding that it is the truth that sets people free. Not acting like you care about a person and being so loving and saying, well, that's how you were born, so it's okay to do that. We're all born sinners. And it's much better not to do the thing that we want to do. It's better not to do that. Well, I was born that way, and so I need to. It's better not to do that and have the peace of God and the redemption of God and the forgiveness of sins and eternity in heaven. It's better not to do that and receive all that God has for you. That's repentance. And that's what we want to teach people and share with people, that your sin is killing you. And you must repent and turn to Jesus, and he will heal you. So this is the message, the word. It's the explanation of reconciliation. And then the last thing, when it comes to ministering, it's the word, but then it's works. 
And so now they're doing some practical things. It says they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed him. So, so there's the word and then there's the work. And it's all done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's done with a heart and mind of compassion and an understanding that now as a born-again believer, my life is given to go and to minister in the power of God. My life has been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. And now I'm his. And everything that I do at the core of my being is to surrender to God's will so that he would be glorified now and forevermore. And we live in a time, if it was time in Jesus' time to go, it's time to go now. It's time to stop watching. It's time to stop sitting. It's time to stop saying, I'll get to that later. The time is now to get going. And so whatever that particularly means for you, Get on your knees and pray and seek God's will about what exactly he wants you to do in regards to going. Has there been a missions trip you've been thinking about? Has there been a a place that's been on your heart that you've said no to? Has there been a person? Has it been in your workplace? Has it been in your family? Do you need to write a letter Do you need to make a phone call or send a text and share and just make sure everybody that you know around you, at least they know what the gospel is. At least they know what the Bible says about going to heaven and about going to hell. At least they know that Jesus came and died for their sins. Let's start in Jerusalem. Then we can move to Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. But if all of Christianity was up to us here today, may the Lord come and find a group of people who have changed their environment upside down because they scattered as much seed as they can possibly scatter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord, um, for those who have maybe left their first love. I talk to so many people that tell me how they got saved and to see the smile on their face when they talk about it, to see the, the tears stream down their eyes and to know that you've overwhelmed them with your love and grace. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would make it our priority to scatter seed, that we would find our joy in simply scattering seeds. Lord, we pray that even today, you'd open up opportunities for us. I pray, Lord, that we would be aware and that we'd be always having before us the seed and the sowing of the seed. But Lord, I do pray that there would be seed that take root, that would find good soil. And Lord, I pray that you would give us an opportunity even to share the gospel 
with someone's prodigal that we may run into. And I pray for our prodigals that someone may share the gospel with them. I pray that people who don't know us would share the gospel with us, not knowing. But Lord, I pray that that would be our mission, that we would accept because you've already ordained us in that mission. And so, Lord, we present ourselves to you, ask that you would baptize us in your Holy Spirit, ask that we wouldn't grow cold or complacent, ask that we wouldn't backslide, ask that we would be mindful of the days that we're living in, Ask us to walk, uh, we ask you that we would walk circumspectly, knowing that the days are evil. Renew a right spirit in us, Lord. And for anybody here or listening now, if you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you must do that now. Cry out to him, ask him to forgive you of your sins, realize you're a sinner and you're hopeless and desperate and clinging to eternity without him right now. And you must cry out and ask him to save you, to forgive you, and to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Do that now and don't wait. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand and let's worship the Lord here before we leave one last time. If Anybody would like prayer about anything this morning, we're going to have Rob and Val up front. Just please come forward as they are excited and anxious to pray for you guys. But man, let's worship the Lord with all of our hearts. God bless you guys.